The sermon text for today is from the book of Luke, chapter 4, verses 14 through 21. Listen as I read God's word. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has appointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Here ends the reading. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be with you here today. As we uh, come to this passage of scripture, I'd like to invite you to join me in a word of prayer. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices, together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. Lord, we do long for the day when we can say that the nations have seen and experienced the salvation of you, our God. Lord, thank you for the good news of the gospel. And we ask that as we look at this passage of scripture today and as we think about this question of what is the gospel, that you would give us clarity. That for those of us who have been followers of Jesus for many years, that we would be refreshed. For those of us who have not been followers of Jesus for maybe very long at all, we pray that you would teach us. Lord, we ask that over these next weeks that you would give us clarity and understanding and that we would have a robust picture of what the gospel is. We ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus, and all God's people said, amen. Well, it can be easy to lose sight of things that we are familiar with. Things that we are familiar with that we see all the time, it can be easy to just sort of not even notice them. So for example, if you, you may have experienced something like this if you've gone into a new workplace or joined a new team, and for those first like two months, you are more objective than you will ever be. And you go into that situation and you see things. And you think to yourself, why do you do it this way? That doesn't seem very efficient. 
You see the culture, you see the way that things are done, and, and, and you see it from an objective standpoint. But then once you've been there for a couple months, or a couple years, or a couple decades, all of those things, you just don't even see them anymore until the next person comes in and maybe tells you about them, and you say, oh yeah, I, re I remember feeling that way when I got here too. But things that we're familiar with, we can easily lose sight of those things. This is true if you've been to uh, a new place. You sort of go there and the first time you're sort of trying to take it all in and you see all the cool things and your mind is just sort of overloaded with all of the, uh, everything that comes with this new place, but then you go there a fifth, a sixth, a seventh time and all of a sudden the things that you used to see before, you don't really see them as much. It becomes familiar to you. This is true in your home. Whether you live in an apartment, in a dorm room, in a house, wherever you live, uh, th this happens to you too where you will set something down. There will be a pile. And the pile sits there, and the pile sits there, and before you know it, you literally don't even see it when you walk by. And then, if you're anything like me, you're gonna have company over, and you're like, oh, <laughs> I should start taking care of these things. So a couple years ago, this happened to us, I think our small group was gonna come over, and as I was sort of tidying up the house, uh, what I saw sitting on the front ledge of our house by our front door was a pile of dirt, likely from our, uh, at the time, cat playing around in the dirt. And then if you can see that, yeah, that's a hacksaw. And my, th my thought was, why in the world do we have a hacksaw sitting on the front ledge of our house? Where did it come from? I know I had seen it before, but then I didn't do anything about it. And then I didn't do anything about it the next time I saw it. And I didn't do anything about it the next time I saw it. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh wait, we have a hacksaw sitting in the front entrance of our house. Also, we have small children. Why do we have a hacksaw sitting <laughs> in, the, in the entryway to our house? But this just goes to illustrate something that you have uh, experienced before, maybe not with something as dangerous as this, uh, but we have all experienced things like this, where you, you come into something, it's new, it's fresh, and then over time, it becomes familiar, and you can lose sight of it, you can forget about it. This is, this is even possible as we think about the most important things in life, uh, like the gospel. It's possible for us, it's even probable, that without a lot of vigilance and with a lot, without a lot of intentionality, the thing that our lives are built upon, this message of the gospel, uh, we're a gospel-centered people, we're a gospel-shaped people, and yet because we talk about the gospel so often, it can, over time, become commonplace. We can lose sort of our sense of wonder at the gospel. We can sort of even reduce it to, to it, it becomes something uh, less than, than the fullness of what it actually is because we just don't, we just lose sight of it because it's familiar to us. And so what we want to do this fall is we want to just take some time to ask the question, what is the gospel? Let's just ask that question and spend the next number of weeks uh, looking, looking at, answering that question together. The gospel is multifaceted, it's beautiful, it's like a diamond. As you turn it over time and time again, you see different aspects of it. And yet there's a, 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 a common thread, a common story that runs through the entire gospel. And so that's what we're going to spend these next weeks looking at. So today, we are just going to spend our time trying to answer the question just very simply, what is the gospel? And if you're here today and you've been a follower of Jesus for many years, you may think to yourself, you know, I don't need this sermon. I would like to encourage all of us to come at this from the perspective of saying, okay, Lord, what, what new, fresh thing about the gospel do you want me to learn today and over the course of this series as we look at this together? So let's think about that question, what is the gospel? 
So as we begin today, as we uh, look at this passage from Luke 4, what I want to do before we look at that passage is uh, I think sometimes it's helpful if you're to try and define something, what it is, I think sometimes it's helpful even to start uh, by defining what it is not before you define what it is. And so this morning, I want to spend a few minutes at the beginning here uh, identifying three things the gospel is not, and then we will go into the text and see what the gospel is, okay? So first thing, the gospel is not, the gospel is not good advice. The gospel is not merely, it is not only good advice. How many of you, by show of hands, have ever received unwanted or unsolicited advice from someone? Yeah, basically everybody has. Okay, if you're a parent and you're out in public and your kids are being rambunctious, your kids are being noisy, uh, and and you you get the stare from someone, that stare is good advice. The stare is a lot of advice, and the advice is get your kids under control. You've experienced this maybe in other areas where someone has given you unwanted or unsolicited advice as it relates to your marriage or your relationships or your finances or your education, your vocation, any of those things. We've all experienced someone giving us unwanted advice. Now, if the person who's giving you the advice doesn't know you very well, especially you will probably be thinking to yourself as they're giving you this advice, you'll think to yourself, they don't know my situation. I can tell you right now that what they're suggesting is not gonna work. I know for a fact that that's not gonna work with my kids. It's not gonna work in my specific situation, but they don't know me well enough. And so that, that, sort of, uh, that illustration sort of uh, reveals something of, of the essence of what good advice is. Good advice is something that you can take or leave. Someone gives you advice, they say, hey, you know, I see you got this issue going on, you could try this. Good advice is something that you would say, sure, that sounds like a reasonable idea, maybe I'll give that a shot. Or you might say, hmm, I know that's not gonna work in our particular situation, so I'm not even gonna try it at all. So good advice, at its core, is something that you can take or leave. And the gospel is fundamentally not good advice. The second thing the gospel is not, the gospel is not a set of doctrines to believe. The gospel is not only, not merely a list of doctrinal beliefs that a person must have in order to be saved. Now, if you've been around Elmwood for any length of time, you know that we believe right doctrine matters. Okay, someone give me a head nod on that. Right doctrine matters, right doctrine is essential, right doctrine is important. So before you send me an email, Please understand what I am saying. I am saying the gospel is not less than right doctrine, but the gospel is not merely or only or reduced to right doctrine. Don't look at the, ne- at the person next to you if this describes them. We can probably all identify a person in our life who we would say, yes, they check all of the doctrinal boxes. They believe everything in the Apostles' Creed. They believe everything in even the Nicene Creed or some of the more obscure ones that we're not as familiar with. They would check all the boxes for right doctrine. They believe in the deity of Jesus. They believe in the physical resurrection. They believe in, in, in all of the right things. And yet their life does not seem to be all that transformed or changed by those beliefs they have. That person may not exhibit a whole lot of transformation as a result of the presence and work of the Holy Spirit in their life. They may not exhibit lots of the fruit of the Spirit. And so certainly... The gospel is something that contains right doctrine. There's right doctrine that we must believe. And at the same time, the gospel is not only, it's not merely 
right doctrine to believe, boxes to check, yes, I mentally assent to that. Okay, does that make sense? So number one, it's not good advice. Number two, the gospel is not simply, not merely, not only a list of doctrines to believe. And number three, the gospel is not spiritual training wheels. The gospel is not a set of spiritual training wheels. Now, if any of you have taught a child to ride a bike, what you know is that uh, from a young age, kids don't have the balance they need to be able to ride the bike. And so what do you put on the bike to help them? You put it on training wheels. And as that child is learning how to ride the bike, the training wheels do all of the balancing for them. And then once the kid gets good at the balancing part, they can lose the training wheels and rely on their own balance. Okay, the gospel is not like a set of spiritual training wheels that, yeah, it's really important at the beginning, but then after we become competent, after we sort of learn a few things, we sort of, we lose, we sort of shed the gospel behind us. We don't really need it as much. You know, the gospel is to help get me saved. But then once I'm saved, I move on to other things in order to be transformed, in order to uh, pursue a life of intimacy with Christ. I pursue other things. The gospel isn't really as necessary for me after that. And that's just not at all what the gospel is. The gospel is not like a set of spiritual training wheels. It's not like uh, just the minimum standard of belief that we need to sort of get our foot in the door of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Tim Keller says it really well. He says, he says that the gospel is not the ABCs of the Christian life. The gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. I think uh, J.D. Greer has said it in a way that for me has been the most helpful. Uh, so I'll share that with you. J.D. Greer says it like this. He says, the gospel is not the diving board off of which we jump into the pool of Christianity. The gospel is the pool. Okay, does that make sense? So it, it's not a diving board that sort of just springs us, we leave it behind, and then we go into something else. No, the gospel is the pool itself. And so I think what, what both Keller and Greer are getting at is that the gospel is not something that we ever move on from. We never move on from the gospel. We only move deeper into the gospel. We only move deeper into it to understand its, its beauty and its complexity and its richness in fresh and new ways. And the gospel is what saves us, yes, by believing uh, the truths about who God is and what he's done for us in Jesus. That is essential to become a follower of Jesus, to be born again. And yet the gospel is not just what gets us saved, it's the gospel itself, the good news about Jesus that is what transforms us over a lifetime. So we don't get saved by the gospel and then get transformed in life by a bunch of other different stuff. The gospel is both what saves and transforms. And it doesn't matter how long you have walked with Jesus. Some of you have walked with Jesus in here for decades, for longer than I've been alive. And some of you are maybe newer to the faith. Every single one of us needs the gospel now as much as we did the moment we first believed. So the gospel is not like a set of spiritual training wheels we decide to just kind of just leave behind us as we gain our own balance in the life of following Jesus. So does this make sense? The gospel is not good advice, not merely good advice. It's not just a set of doctrines to believe, and it's not a set of spiritual training wheels, okay? That's what the gospel is not. Does that make sense? We're on the same page? Okay, so that's what the gospel is not. The question then is, okay, what is the gospel? So let's look at this passage from Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, as you heard read a moment ago, Jesus has been empowered by the Holy Spirit. He's 
traveling through the region of Galilee and he is teaching in the synagogues. We're told in verse 16 that Jesus, he went to Nazareth, which was his hometown. That's his old stomping grounds. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read, and when the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, he unrolled it and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoner and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So this is, this is the first message in, in Luke's account of Jesus' life and ministry. This is the first sort of sermon that is given off the lips of Jesus in Luke's gospel, which tells us something about it. It tells us that it is almost impossible to overstate the importance of what Jesus does and says right here. Because everything that Jesus is going to say and do after this moment is reflective of what he says right here. And we see that Jesus quotes from Isaiah chapter 61. And it can feel to us sometimes as we read the New Testament, as we hear people like Jesus quote from the Old Testament, or we see other New Testament writers quote from the Old Testament. Sometimes it can feel like what they're doing is just sort of finding a passage and and just taking it and repurposing it for their own means. That they're sort of just... uh, picking and choosing, kind of cherry picking, or they're trying to uh, uh, co-opt a verse that doesn't really mean what they're saying, but they're going to use it to say that anyways. It's not at all how the New Testament uses the Old Testament. And here, as Jesus quotes Isaiah 61, what he is doing is he is inviting all of his listeners into the world of and into the message of the book of Isaiah. Jesus is assuming that as you hear him quote this passage from Isaiah 61, that you will hear this knowing the the, the context of what Isaiah, the book of Isaiah talks about. So Jesus assumes that we have that background, and he's using Isaiah 61 in line with how it's being used uh, within the actual book of Isaiah itself. So let's just pull back for a moment and and think about the, the, the book of Isaiah. So Isaiah can fall uh, sort of very broadly into two different sections. Uh, There's chapter 1 through 39, and the themes of 1 through 39 are idolatry and exile. God's people are selfish, they are rebellious, they are filled with idolatry, and as a result of it, God leads his people into exile in Babylon. God hands his people over because of their disobedience. The second half of Isaiah, in chapters 40 to 66, has a different theme to it. The theme goes from idolatry and exile to hope and restoration. That's what the second half of Isaiah is all about. It's about hope and restoration. And as you read the second half of Isaiah, what you see is that the people of Israel are still unfaithful. The people of Israel are still rebellious. They're still filled with selfishness. God has called Israel to be a faithful covenant partner. And in covenant relationship with God, he's called them to be a light to the nations. In other words, the nations that are around the people of Israel, by observing them and by observing their character and how their community is set up and by observing their worship, those other nations are supposed to see something about who Yahweh is by looking at the nation of Israel. They're supposed to be a light. They're supposed to communicate to the nations who God is and what he's like. And yet the people are still rebellious. The people are still incapable of being the light to the nations that God has called them to be. And so the good news of the book of Isaiah is that God has promised he will send his servant to do what the people of Israel cannot do. 
God will send his servant. He will send his deliverer, or the, the technical Old Testament term is, is his Messiah, which is a word that means his anointed one. God is going to send his anointed deliverer, his servant, to do for the people what they could not do. He's going to send his servant to be everything that the people of Israel were supposed to be and did not do. Everything they were supposed to embody and failed to embody, this servant is going to be sort of a, a kind of new Israel uh, figure himself. And so this is, this is the good news of the book of Isaiah. This is the hope and the restoration is that forgiveness is possible by being in relationship with God's servant. There's hope and there's restoration. There's forgiveness by being aligned with God's servant, by being in proximity to him, by being in relationship with him. And so when we come to Isaiah 61, where this quotation, the spirit of the Lord is on me. He's anointed me to, pro to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoner, sight for the blind, the year of the Lord's favor. As the, the, the servant in Isaiah 61 says this, What's being communicated is, is, is that there is a new era of God's redemptive work that is coming. There's a new sort of phase to God's redemptive purposes in the world that is coming. There's a new era of God's work that's on its way. And that is the hope, that is the restoration for Israel, is that God is going to do something fresh. God is going to do something new. And so this is, this is what Jesus then quotes Jesus, in his sort of inaugural first sermon that's recorded, at least in this book, what Jesus does is he takes the words of the servant on his own lips and he says them as his own words. And he says to the people, in what is what sounds to me anyways like a, quite the mic drop moment, he rolled up the scroll, gave it back and sat down, and then said, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Certainly he said more than probably that, uh, but that's the essence of what he said. <laughs> he reads this quote that is Isaiah longing for the time when God's servant is going to come and this new era of God's deliverance is going to come. And Jesus says, everything that Isaiah hoped for and longed for, it's here in me. And so Jesus takes the words of the servant of Isaiah and makes them his own words. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom to the prisoner, sight for the blind, the year of the Lord's favor. And so as we see Jesus, how Jesus is using this passage here, I think it gives us some clues we can sort of uh, now move to define what the gospel is. The gospel is, at its core, it is an announcement of good news. If you've been around the church for a while, you've probably heard someone talk about this, how the Greek word gospel, that we translate gospel, is a word that literally means good news. That's what the gospel is. It's an announcement of good news. Something has happened in history, and everything is different because of it. One of the best ways I've heard this put is by a scholar named N.T. Wright. Uh, he, he says it very helpfully, and so I want to uh, show you what he says. He says, uh, the gospel is an announcement as the result of which everything is different. The gospel is an announcement. There's a historical time, place, reality that has taken place in the world. God has done something, and as a result of that thing that God has done, as a result of that historical fact, everything is different. 
worlds of possibility are now opened because of the historical fact of what God has done. So that's essentially what the gospel is. It's an announcement of something that has taken place in time and space and history, and as a result of that thing, everything is different. Imagine for a moment, imagine someone who is living in a concentration camp in Nazi-occupied Poland. Someone who goes to bed every day wondering, is tomorrow going to be the day that I die? Maybe from malnutrition, maybe from the brutality of the Nazi soldiers, maybe from the uh, going to the gas chamber, is tomorrow the day that I'm going to die? And every morning they wake up and they're faced with Nazi soldiers. And then one morning they wake up and instead of seeing a Nazi soldier, what they see is an allied soldier instead. And the allied soldier says to them, the Germans have been defeated. The war is essentially over. That is good news for someone who's living in that kind of a situation, hearing that message of what is historically, what's taken place in time and space and history, the historical event of the Germans being overthrown is good news. And the proclamation of that good news to that person who's been living in a concentration camp could be called a gospel. It's good news about something that has taken place in history as a result of which everything is different. And this is what the gospel is. The gospel is an announcement of the, of the, the work that God is doing in the world. God is, has done something decisively in history to rescue, to redeem, to save his people. He's brought about a new era in his plan of deliverance and salvation. He sent us his son. That is the historical fact that is what is announced to us as good news. It's proclaimed to us as good news. Interestingly, the good news of God's son being sent into the world ends not with Jesus coming as a conquering war hero to overthrow the Roman government and to kill all of his enemies. The good news of the gospel is that God sent us his son and that his son was executed. Now, for a lot of people, that sounds like, how is that good news? <laughs> how is that possibly good news? It's, it sounds like a failed attempt at rescue, if you ask me. But this is part of the mystery and the beauty of the gospel is that God sent his son for us, and it's good news because God's son gave his life for us. So we see something of that in this proclamation from Isaiah, which says, the spirit of the Lord is on me to proclaim three things, good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoner, the year of the Lord's favor. But also, it doesn't, it doesn't just say that this sort of servant of the Lord is going to announce good news. What it says is that the servant himself is going to accomplish the good news. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free. So this servant of the Lord is not going to come announcing good news, pointing to something else. The servant of the Lord in the person of Jesus is coming to point us to himself, to say, I'm the one who's come to announce that good news is here. Everything that Isaiah longed for and hoped for and everything the people of God have been anticipating for generations is coming true by my life and by my ministry, and we will see later on by his death alone. And so this is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus came as a suffering servant and the good news is that deliverance and forgiveness and hope and restoration and flourishing are ours to be had as we live in relationship with God's servant. 
So this is the good news of the gospel. It is an announcement about a historical reality that has taken place. As a result of that historical reality, everything is different. As we come to the communion table today, we get to remember and we get to celebrate that everything that the Old Testament longs for and hoped for comes to fruition, comes to its fulfillment in the person and the work of Jesus. And over these next number of weeks, we're going to be exploring, we're going to be looking at who God is. We're going to be looking at who we are. We're going to be looking at our rebellion against God. We're going to be looking at God's promise to crush the head of the serpent. We're going to be looking at the uh, rescue plan that God has enacted in the person of Jesus and God's plan to redeem and to restore all things. So we're going to be exploring this in greater detail over these next weeks. But I think it's so important that as we come to the communion table and as we begin this series, we remember the essence of the gospel is that it is good news about a historical fact that has taken place in time and space and history. And as a result of that, everything is different. As we come to the table today, I'd like to invite you to bow for a moment of silent reflection and confession. Our merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you. We've sinned against you in our thoughts and in our words and in our deeds. We confess, Lord, that we have sinned against you by the things that we have done as well as by the things that we have left undone. We confess, Lord, that we have not loved you with our whole heart and mind and strength with everything we have. Our allegiance has been divided. And we have not loved our neighbors with the same intensity that we would even love ourselves. And so, Lord, we confess these things to you and we pray that in your mercy you would forgive what we have been. We pray that you would help us amend what we are. Would you change us and transform us? And we pray that you would direct what we shall be. Also that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your holy name. And all God's people said, amen.